when you are on the business side, whether you're a founder, whether you're leading a project, whether you're recruiting somebody, what you're doing is you need to know how to interact with people who do this job. You don't need to do it yourself because that's why you hire them. It's a bit like hmm. hiring a lawyer. The whole point of hiring a lawyer is that you don't have to go to law school. On today's show, we are talking to Sophia Matviva, the Tech for Non-Techies founder. She's also a podcast host and someone who runs educational courses at academic institutions. A little bit later on in the show, we're also going to be talking about TikTok, who have an issue because they are prioritizing white creators over black creators unfairly. So we're talking about the bias in that particular platform. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by the Harvey Nash Group, bringing you interviews with leaders across the industry and a bit of technology news. Today, I am joined by Amber. How are you this morning? I'm all good. How are you? Good. We had the summer solstice, obviously, this week. Did you know the summer solstice was colder than the winter solstice this year? I don't even know what that is. What do you mean you don't know what it is? What word is it? I've never heard of that. What's before. the solstice? So, yeah. so the so, so well, okay. So the the twenty first of June is the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere. It's the longest day of the year. Okay, I did know that it was the longest day of the year on Monday, but I didn't know that's what it was called. Yes. Okay. So the shortest day of the year is twenty first of December. Longest day of the year is twenty first of June, and the twenty first of June twenty twenty one was colder than the twenty first of December twenty twenty. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Well, that's how I'm pleased about that. It's been freezing mm. again this week, hasn't it? So, what does that mean? What does that mean now? Does that mean that the days start to get shorter? The days do, unfortunately, now begin to get shorter. Right, because apparently it's I mean, it's like ninety seconds a day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean we've we've got a good few months of nice light days. Oh, okay, that's good. I'm panicking now, thinking that I'm going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be pitch black. <laughs> no, no, it's not not quite. If if that happens, something's gone horribly wrong with the orbit of the Earth, and we've got bigger problems. Yeah, yeah. Then we can panic, definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Well, I don't. I think we'll be past panicking at that point. It'll be kind of, <laughs> well, we'll probably all be dead if that suddenly happens. Something something will have gone dram- dramatically wrong. Yeah, and there's a cheery <laughs> note for a Friday morning. <laughs> well, no, but it's not going to happen. So that's fine. Yeah, uh, that's, that's true. <laughs> anyway, look, today we are talking. We're talking all about education, which it feels like this. This has been quite educational. <laughs> <laughs> But tech for non-techies, um, and Sophia is our guest. We'll hand over to the interview. We'll come back with some commentary and then a little bit of tech news later on. So today I'm talking to Sophia. Sophia, thank you for giving up some time. You are the founder of Tech for Non-Techies. First of all, how are you today? I am well because I'm so excited to be back in London after having been in the Côte d'Azur, in the French Riviera, for the past eight months, which is idyllic and beautiful but it's it's not that exciting <laughs> so I've had a lot of sun I've had a lot of sea but now I'm really thrilled to be back to the milieu of a big city I have to say having not been out of the UK for 18 months it does sound rather, rather idyllic and being someone who knows that part of the world pretty well and has been there several you know well, I'd say several times, a lot of times. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind boring and quiet. But um, yes, whereabouts in London are you? 
So right now I am in Kensington Olympia. That's where right. I live normally. And I'm quarantining right now. So I am getting reacquainted with my apartment very intimately. I suppose it, it lends itself to people watching at least where you are. I hope you've got a window overlooking somewhere kind of interesting. Yes, I have. And also I have interesting neighbours, which really helps, who are always doing interesting things. Um, so it's a good neighbourhood. It's a good neighbourhood to quarantine in. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, look, that aside, um, you're here to talk um, about tech for non-techies. Um, people might go, well, I kind of have a inkling what that might be about, but let's let's pretend that's not the case. What do you do? The aim of Tech for Non-Techies is to bridge the digital divide. And the way we do that is we help smart, non-technical professionals understand and learn about the world of tech. So we have Courses, for example, for non-technical founders, and we're about to launch a course called How to Speak Tech, which is for everybody who is not intending to launch a business, but wants to understand the jargon and wants to understand how software products get made. Because, for example, as I was telling you just a bit earlier, if you are a tech recruiter, for example, your job is not to actually write the technology, your job is not to be a software engineer, but if you're going to be hiring software engineers, you do need to understand a little bit about what they do so you can attract and retain clients. So what's the kind of the demand like for that? Because, you know, I, I would I would imagine that there are a hell of a lot of people who do interact with technology. I am a former technology recruiter. There are times where it would have been well, you know, where I thought maybe it would be interesting to pick up some technology skills. I remember people in my team, there was at one point where we were um, we were recruiting network engineers, and this is going back maybe 10 years, and they wanted to do kind of Cisco qualifications, um, <laughs> which sounded awful to me, I'll be perfectly honest. And I, I was recruiting network engineers, but I, I didn't really like the sound of doing low-level Cisco engineering um, qualifications and did actually have a look at some of the questions and found it bewildering. Um, but I did get by without having to go down the route of formal training. And there was a lot of kind of self self development and, and reading on the side. What makes someone take the leap to go, actually, that's not enough. And I do want to do something a little bit more structured. So I think that, uh, so first of all, we started with a non-technical founders course because I myself am a non-technical founder. So I, created my first company when I was doing my MBA at Chicago Booth, and I previously worked in the media and in private equity, so I'd always been very hardworking, um, and when I got into the tech world, like you, I thought, well, I'm just going to learn everything, and I can just learn it by myself, and I was also, I think, misguided, and in what I was told is I heard a lot that if you're a non-tech founder, you need to learn to code. And so actually I started, I did take quite a few courses and like you, I was bewildered by the questions, but I pushed on through and it was a total waste of time because essentially when you are on the business side, whether you're a founder, whether you're leading a project, whether you're recruiting somebody, what you're doing is you need to know how to interact with people who do this job. You don't need to do it yourself because that's why you hire them. It's a bit like mm. hiring a lawyer. The whole point of hiring a lawyer is that you don't have to go to law school. I mean, otherwise, why bother? And the non-technical founders course wasn't even supposed to be a course. It was literally just me giving talks 
I wrote a few Forbes article about this and they became popular. And then somebody from London Business School asked me to essentially deliver the learning and deliver a course. And that's not something I was going to say no to. And what I started seeing in this course that we have for non-technical founders is that people who have no intention of creating tech companies started enrolling on the course. And the course is like $2,000. So it's not a cheap decision to make. You know, it's it's not like my MBA for which I paid $180,000, but it's still, it's a decision. And this is when I started investigating, well, who are these people and why are they here? And what I started seeing is that the tech industry is huge and there are a lot of people who want to understand how they can be part of it, how they can benefit from it. And they don't necessarily want to completely transition career. So they want to be a recruiter. They want to be a lawyer. Maybe they want to be a marketer or they want to be a PR. I actually had somebody who is a lobbyist at one of the big tech firms who ended up taking my non-technical founders course. And um, I asked her why she was taking it because she clearly had no interest in actually becoming a founder. And she said, when you're in one of these companies, even if you are surrounded by the top engineers, nobody can explain to you how the whole thing fits together. And yes, to your point that she could have gone and read all of the books and gone to all of the talks and essentially put this curriculum together and spoken to lots of people, you know, she could have done this, but it would have taken her years and it would have taken her a lot of money. Whereas because the people that I'm working with, they are already smart professionals, they're already smart, ambitious professionals, it is much easier for them to essentially say, oh, okay, well, this is being verified by London Business School, this has been featured in Forbes, this seems legit, it's much easier for me to go and pay this person to essentially mm. curate and tell me what I need to know and essentially have all of this information available to download when I want it rather than to put it all together the way you did. So has the pandemic kind of accelerated the 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 demand or is that something you haven't seen yet? Because, because I would imagine that there's a lot of businesses who um, were perhaps traditional who've been forced online or for whom data has become even more important than it was. Maybe they're building some kind of platform. They've pivoted. All of a sudden, they've had to get data scientists in. They're, they're looking at perhaps um, perhaps they've, you know, they've thought about cloud services for the first time. Maybe they've gone further. Maybe they're looking at um, analytics or the people around them are beginning to talk about APIs and they're feeling further out their depth than they were even prior to, to the last 18 months. Oh, absolutely. I think because so we, we can take retail as an example, because we all know the sector and we've all, we have all been shopping online. So not only has online shopping just exacerbated, but now retailers, many of whom had a very, very traditional mindset pre-pandemic, they have been forced to change. And that change, I think, has been quite painful. And also it's something that, you know, I really want to be cognizant and understanding of because most retailers, they, their main competency is not technology. Their competency is selecting what consumers are going to want and then merchandising it and selling it. So it's merchandisers who rise to the top of retail companies. 
And then you have somebody coming along and saying, but we've got this AI solution. And then we've got this live shopping solution and plug in our API. And you can't blame somebody who spent most of their time thinking about merchandising, looking at these three words, API, and thinking, I'm, I'm no, I'm not going to do this. I have no time. And it doesn't, you know, people are still coming into our shops. It's not particularly relevant. When the pandemic comes along, they have no choice. So those people who could legitimately say 80% of our sales are still coming in traditional way, they can't say that legitimately anymore. So you're right. It, it has been, I think, it's been a rude awakening to lots of traditional businesses, which I think in the long term is going to be beneficial, but I do appreciate that. It hasn't, you know, it hasn't been easy. But I don't think anybody's had a particularly easy year. No, no, that's true. Um, so the temptation is to, look, the temptation with all of this stuff is to basically go, oh, I need to know a little bit more about this stuff. And it's all quite inaccessible. And, you know, my 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 reaction whenever, whenever I hear that we're all going to have to code in the future is slightly terrified because I was terrible at maths. I remember the last time I did any kind of maths was was um, at university and it was um, in my political science or political theory class. I can't remember now. Um, I've blocked it out of my memory. And uh, and for statistics, it was all around, we had to remember how to do long division. And I kind of vaguely remembered how to do long division from school. And then by the end of the lecture, I didn't know how to do long division anymore, um, which was probably the the reverse of what what was supposed to have happened in that hour. And numbers and stats and so on have always slightly terrified me. So the idea that everyone has to code as someone who is firmly entrenched in humanities is quite scary. Well, and I completely agree with you because I hated coding. So I had to, I forced myself to learn a bit. So for example, I took this course from Stanford Online and it was Computer Science 101. And one of the exercises was that I had to code a little blue square into a little black square. And it was supposed to be very easy because all you had to do was change the color. But that took me three hours. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the hours, it was like three very painful, unpleasant hours, just full of insecurity, at which point I was thinking, I have an MBA from a business school, ranked as the global number one by The Economist. I worked in private equity. I like. I thought of myself as a person who can figure things out. And then there's this square just staring back at me and just refusing to change color no matter what I do. And then eventually when it did change color, I didn't have this feeling of, oh, I've got it. I had a feeling of, I am never doing this again. So so on that point, what is, what is your repost to people who would say that we do all need some level of coding skills and coding's easy and you know there's plug and play and automation's going to make it easier what what would you say well no actually we well, this well, isn't necessarily what the world should look like well so i would say to that person that if it's easy if, if everybody if it's really easy uh, for everybody well uh, there are some things that are very easy for some people and not others so for example i would say to them well why don't you go and write me a short story that's going to be really engaging you know, because equally, somebody else with a different type of brain could say, well, why don't you go and write? Everybody should go and learn to write haikus. 
because it's easy for them. So therefore, it's going to be easy for everybody. But that's not the world we live in. And also, that's not the world that I want to live in. I don't want to live in a world where we're all coding and drinking Soylent. If some people want to go and do that, that is fantastic. But that's not what we need. And I think that the very well-meaning government programs to get people into STEM are actually having not only a backlash, but I actually think that they are damaging education. They're damaging, I think they're going to damage the economy in the long run. And also, I think they're damaging how people are seeing themselves. Because if somebody has an arts or humanities degree, I think right now there is a tendency for that person to feel as less than somebody who has a degree in maths or somebody who has a degree in computer science. Now, this is, this is absolutely not true. If we only have a bunch of computer scientists, then, we'll, then essentially the products that we're going to be making are not going to be suitable for use by the wider world. And so essentially, I do think that people do need to understand the basics of technology. But understanding the basics of technology is not the same as learning to code. In fact, I would argue that most, not most, but coders who only focus on writing code don't actually understand the basics of technology in the way that, for example, a product manager who probably doesn't really know much code, maybe, maybe like me, they spend three hours <laughs> with those little squares to just understand like how like what it is, but honestly, I wouldn't I would not recommend doing that to somebody. But I think somebody who's a product manager or somebody who understands how the components all fit together actually has a better understanding of technology than somebody who writes code. Because for example, if we then think about, okay, everybody needs to learn to code, then my question to you is, well, which coding language? Why? What are you going to do with that? And I recently, uh, so Technotechies also has a podcast, and I recently spoke to Jenny Griffiths, uh, who is an AI founder. So she's a founder of a computer vision company, uh, and she has an OBE, and she said, I do, she said that she doesn't believe that you can just go and learn to code in a three-month coding boot camp because she said, well, I have a four-year, I studied this for four years and I still wouldn't call myself an engineer. And this is somebody who has literally invented a formula for computer vision. And so, again, I don't want to discourage people from learning because learning is how we grow. But it's being pragmatic about your learning. If you are that way inclined. If you want to learn to code, if you're really into maths, if this is how your, your brain works and this is what gives you joy, then go do that. But it sounds like you studied political science like I did. So my talents lie elsewhere. Your talents clearly lie elsewhere. So yes, I do believe that in the information economy that we live in, we need to understand some tech concept basics. So understand what is an API. Don't make an API. Understand why it's important and how an API can actually be a business decision. So how can a business use an API to grow their brand, to grow their users, and to grow their revenues? That's not a that's that's business. That's logic. It's not coding. So look as, as a last question, I think this would be 
possibly one of the more interesting ones would be, do you have statistics on the levels of inclusion or diversity rather within your courses, specifically, I suppose, around the founders um, uh, tech for non-techie course versus more traditional technical leaning courses? Do you see a higher proportion of of women and, and people from minority groups taking up your course than perhaps would do if it was a coding boot camp? Oh, absolutely. So it's it's been really interesting because uh, we are 50-50, so 50-50 men and women. Uh, in terms of um, racial diversity, right now I think we're about 35 35% non-white, that's in the latest latest cohort. And uh, what I've also seen is that we've been doing some Facebook advertising. And so what we've noticed is that uh, whilst men and women buy equally, many more women are clicking on the ads and joining the email list. And I don't know what I think about this yet. I don't know whether it is so men seem to see the ad, if it appeals to them, they buy. So men seem to be kind of more trigger happy with their cash, whereas women, they they tend to be more interested in getting the knowledge. But I wonder if it's more a case of, okay, you know, they, they do join, so the final numbers are 50-50. But in terms of kind of viewership, it's it's a more of a female audience than male so. I don't yet know. I don't. I don't yet know what that means, but I just find that interesting. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Um, how long have you got in isolation or, or quarantine? Oh, just just five days left. Uh, so I'm hoping that by the time I come out, the weather is going to be fantastic, and I can still show off my town. <laughs> Thank you for your time today, and uh, looking at the time now, have a lovely evening. Thank you. You too. Would you be scared of coding? Yeah, like a hundred percent. I'm, I'm kind of what, what you said in the interview about like maths and stats and all stuff like that. It kind of terrifies you. I'm exactly the same. The idea of it would just go completely over my head. Like I, I'm one of these people. Like the way I learn, I have to make like tons and tons and tons of notes anyway. So something like this would just completely overwhelm me, and I'd probably have to analyze it for days on end for something to sort of to go in. And yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it just sounds like my worst nightmare, to be honest. Like, fair play to anyone who wants to do it and is really passionate about doing doing it, which obviously there are sort of several people who who are, but um, yeah, not not for me personally. I mean, I understand why people say that everyone will need to be able to code a little bit. And when they say that, coding isn't what we think of as maybe coding 10, 15 years ago. And there are programs that are kind of drag and drop in it. You know, you can see it with... Um, you know the the Barclays do do that um, that course for kids, don't they? Which is like mm. a, a, a low level coding thing. There are lots of toys where children are encouraged to kind of code to make a robot do certain things and all those bits and pieces. Mm. Um, and we've had loads of, of 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 companies on on here over the years. Cipher, Elizabeth Tweedale, one few years ago, um, who kind of runs summer camps, coding camps, making it fun, creating games for kids. I do get all that. But there are some people who are just wired a bit differently, and I genuinely think I would I would struggle. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's becoming well, obviously, it's having to become more and more popular. And as you said, there's like camps kind of popping up. There's like there's a lot of um, 
I see like a lot of places on the high street. There's one in like the Asda near me that has like a little like um, coding academy where you can obviously sign mm. up your kids and they can go to like evening lessons and stuff. So it's um, like there are there are ways to do it if you want to. But I'm I'm the same as you. I just I don't think I would ever get it. Like I think I could try and study it study it for my entire life. And I genuinely just don't think I would get it. And I know that sounds incredibly dim, but I think there's going to be a lot of people, same as you and I, that just would just this would just go completely over their heads. And I think I think what Sophia's doing, which is is wonderful, is plugging that gap of say you or I were to come up with a with a business idea, chances are it would rely really heavily on technology. Mm. They would be enabled in some way by tech, because most things are these days. So you'd probably have to bring on board a CTO. And you'd want to understand what the hell that person was doing. And you could probably get a rudimentary um, understanding. And I've spoken to plenty of founders over the years on here who don't have technical backgrounds, but a course that would just help you make sense and help you be able to have a conversation and understand what all of these things are, obviously does, as I said, plug that gap. And and I'm not surprised it's been as successful and as and as um, well, uh, or or as it is enthusiastically adopted as it has been. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good idea because even the example that she used of being like a technical recruiter, obviously we can completely obviously relate to that. And I think it, it just to have that sort of that credibility, like you never are going to talk to them in full sort of technical sort of terminology and know every single thing that they're saying when they sort of might talk you through their CVs. But just to be able to have that back and forth conversation and be a bit more credible and just be able to just sort of, yeah, just understand what they're saying. Because if I look back to when I started this job, there was all this terminology being thrown at me and it just meant nothing. And, And it did make the job way more difficult. Whereas now it's like, you understand what they're saying. You can have a bit of sort of conversation and there's, there's, more to it and it really does sort of go in and it actually sort of carries a bit more weight whereas before it was just like Mm. what are these people talking about but and I think if you're a business founder that's really important because like you say you're not going to be sat in the dev teams coding with them but just to be able to go in and understand what they're doing and how that's going to impact your business again it's it's just you can actually sort of talk to these people and just understand what's going on but then I would raise the question. So you just said there that obviously if you bring in a CTO to your business and you want to understand what they're doing, mm. to me, I think it's it's good to understand. But then surely if you brought in like an experienced CTO, is it not their job to understand and sort of feed that back to you? And I don't know, is there not going to be like trust in that individual to know what they're doing and, and obviously put it in their capable hands? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Sophia said, and I don't think actually it's captured in the recording. I think we said it before we hit record, and she was talking about the fact that, unfortunately, in technology, there's there's this um, there's this propensity to talk jargon and then talk even more jargon. So you you ask about jargon, and then you get more jargon back in the answer. And I think it's a nice reminder, actually, that if you are someone who's technical in the CTO, that it's really important that you make an effort to talk in in plain English or in terms that that someone who isn't necessarily as technically minded as you or an engineer can understand Mm. um i I do think that that yeah the cto is there to like it like like in a larger business you have to have someone who translates technical to business speak but if you're a co-founder of a business 
it's obviously your life and you're going to want to understand as much as you possibly can. And sometimes founding partnerships don't work perfectly. And you often do hear, unfortunately, cases of people having a, an initial co-founder and that person's a technical co-founder or whatever else, or you know, they're looking for a business partner who can, who can do the business side. And for whatever reason, it doesn't work and they have to find a new, a new partner. And I think if you, if you don't have that base understanding at that point, then it might become problematic. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think, especially if you're like a small business, and obviously, as you said, you're kind of like in a startup sort of phase. I think as well, like, what harm is it going to do? I think if you want to upskill yourself, and you've got that, like, you know, you've got the, the time, obviously, everyone's had way more time over lockdown that they're not, mm. even if they get like an hour back on their commute, and they can spend that hour sort of doing these courses and stuff. Um, and, and as she said as well, like if you compare it to doing like a university degree, like it's obviously it's way more accessible, it's way more affordable as well. So you can understand why people want to do it. And as I said, I, I think if you're upskilling yourself and you want to learn, like that's never a bad thing, is it? So, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, there is all of those stats that you know, 25, 30 years ago, your skills would last you. I don't know, 10, 10, 15, 20 years. Now your skills last you anywhere between 18 months and three years. You have got to constantly learn throughout your whole career. You you can't stay still in any one job now because of the industry around you is evolving all the time. Yeah. But like one thing I'm confused about, so you said that all of us, you've read this thing online that all of us have to code come the future. Well, or, or- there's this, there's this, there is a it's not like universally accepted but there are a lot of people who say that everyone everyone will need to go to a certain degree you know oh, there okay. is that that, that th- thread out there that people people sometimes kind of very much emphasize the need for people to be able to to go to to an extent in the future right i see okay yeah i was panicking then thinking we were all going to be enrolled into a, a coding course or something in the next few days. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think, <laughs> fingers crossed, we'll be okay. But that, that you know, that's why you get all these coding academies for schools for kids. Mm. Sorry, um, and the Barclays thing that we're talking about and Cipher and so on, because there is that there is that feeling that coding skills are oh, undoubtedly coding skills are useful. Um, not necessarily for everyone, though. Yeah, no, definitely, and obviously, what with like, I mean, there's such like high demand like skill sets aren't they and there's such a skill shortage that if more people from a young age because I think me you and Akisha talked about something like this before whereas like if you think of IT and you think of IT jobs when you're at school or when we was at school like years back like you used to just think of the like the IT technician who used to sort of just sit in the little cupboard and that was kind of your whole idea of being like a, a techie yeah. whereas if you think now like kids are so much more exposed to it and obviously we use technology so much more and if you think of all these exciting career paths where you could go and be a coder and there's an actually like an option that you can go and do it and test it out and you really like it, then, yeah, I mean, I think that's really good because it's just something that we never had. And it's like you say, there's an exciting kind of career path there and it's lucrative and it's something you enjoy and you're passionate about. Then, yeah, like if the, the roots are there for you to do it, then that's amazing because it's something that I guess we never really had like our idea of a techie was just the literally the guy who sat in the cupboards times are changing yes exactly far too quickly (laughs) right i think we will wrap up the conversation there we will have a quick break we'll come back with a quick piece of technology news that amber knows nothing about so this will be fun (laughs) a couple of years ago michael and jacob two friends from london were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole 
Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe could be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, remind me, how old are you? 25. You're kind of on the cusp of a really, really young millennial and possibly the oldest Gen Z going. Oh, brilliant. That's... Yeah, that's what, what would you what would you think of yourself as? Do, do you even think of yourself as, as as kind of in those categories? No, because this this actually confuses me when you hear of like Gen Z and Gen Y and X and W. And you're not. You're definitely not X or Y. It, it just confuses me so much. Like I don't know if I'm just being again like really dim, but I, I sort of no. I just listen to some of these things and I'm like I don't really know what I would classify myself as or or what half of these actually mean as well. To be honest. I mean, Gen Z definition. Let's let's very quickly look this up. Uh, Gen Z, known as Zoomers. Does it actually say when you're born? Researchers and popular media use the mid to late 90s as the starting birth years to the early 2010s as the ending birth years. That's a pretty big. That's a that's that's a huge span of time right if you, you, that's definitely you then okay so i am a, a gen z well you've got to be mid 90s right yeah 95 yeah right okay you're gen z uh <laughs> there you go we've categorized you we've pigeonholed you <laughs> um that means you must be into tiktok oh god i have a really love-hate relationship with tiktok so right go on in the first lockdown I downloaded it and but like I, I genuinely like I never ever have recorded a TikTok video. I just think I'd be useless at it. And also You're not doing yes. you're not doing shuffle dances every day or I'm not doing shuffle dances. Like I don't mind watching people do the shuffle dance, but I personally will not be doing the shuffle dance. <laughs> so I downloaded it in the first one and then like literally just was a bit not obsessed with it, but I just used to watch it an awful lot. So then I got rid of it got rid of it for a very long time and then it was only up until the, like the third lockdown that I was like oh sorry I'm going to download it again and then again I've had to delete it because I just can't do things in sort of like healthy <laughs> amounts I'm a bit like obsessed with things or addictive personality so um it's had to go right so the reason why I'm mentioning this and this actually unfortunately has a bit of a a worrying aspect to it is that um a lot of black creators on TikTok are going on strike. So Megan Thee Stallion's got a new song out. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that viral dances on TikTok. That's like the thing, isn't it? Viral dances on yeah. TikTok. Apparently, a lot of those viral dances, and I was a little bit ignorant to this, start with black creators and then right. being culturally appropriated by white creators um, who then end up on things like Jimmy Fallon and the Cardassians. And they're basically taking dances that are created by black creators on the platform and then they're getting credit for it. So someone apparently called Addison Ray. Um, and people might go, oh, well, so what? But you have to remember that influence, influencers on these platforms now get paid huge sums of money. And their yeah, following massive. is really important. And the worrying thing is, is, is that 
there there is this feeling that um, black dancers and black creators are having their their work appropriated, so they're going on strike, and yeah, they're basically tired of white um, creators on the platform profiting off their work, uh, and. TikTok has been called out in the past for treating black creators unfairly and suppressing their content. So in searches for viral dancers made by black users, the algorithm prioritizes white creators' copies of them. Oh, really? That is really worrying. Yeah. Especially because I I was about to say, I guess it's it's so difficult because what comes up on the news feed and, and then obviously who likes it or shares it or, or whatever, I guess, comes down to like the individual. But if it's in the algorithm, as you've just said, then that is, yeah, really worrying. But I understand yeah. why they're doing it because like you said, you can earn so much money off the back of it. So if you were to, I mean, I hate this anyway, when you do something and someone else copies it and then they kind of get the credit for it. I know this obviously that's like a very like simplistic way of looking at it, but yeah, I mean, that would really frustrate you, wouldn't you? If, if you sort of put something together, put it out there on a social platform, and then you saw someone else doing the exact same thing, like copying, copying exactly what you've done, and then they're getting paid loads of money for it and getting loads of credit, going on TV shows or being recognised, you know, in the media for it, and you're sat there like, hang on a minute. And look, it's happened. It's happened. I think this is interesting because it has happened throughout history, especially when it comes to music. When you think of kind of Elvis Presley and rock and roll and all that stuff, it was very much appropriated from um, black rock and roll musicians. But Elvis Presley was the one who was successful and made a lot of money. Um, mm. That I watched this. There's this new documentary on Netflix um, called This Is Pop, which is really interesting. That looks at various different cultural music movements. There's like ones on Brit pop. There's ones on country music. There's ones on the fact that Sweden basically is the most powerful country in pop music in a way that I didn't really quite figure. But like the amount that- of Swedish people behind all of the biggest hits is terrifying. Um, oh, I was but- going to say, is it because of ABBA? Well, yeah, it started with ABBA, but it's 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 like you kind of go, oh, it's ABBA, isn't it? Oh, hang on, no, it's it's everything. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, but there's an episode as well where they talk about the success of Boys to Men. Oh, right, okay. Oh, gosh, that's going back a bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so late 80s and early 90s, and they were like the prototype boy band. Hmm. But then, like, it's really interesting because then along came um, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, all of those bands, hmm. because Boys to Men straddled the the popular um, popular industry between black fans and white fans. And apparently, if you went to one of their concerts, like eighty percent of the people there were white. But what it came down to was record bosses figured that white fans wouldn't have a, a poster of Boys to Men in their bedroom, but they would have a poster of NSYNC or they would have a poster of the Backstreet Boys. Uh, and so this has always kind of happened, this cultural appropriation. But the fact that an algorithm yeah. is entrenching that and technology, which can be so wonderful in in giving an opportunity to people, like TikTok should be the opportunity where actually you go, no, this these are the videos that are, that are starting these trends and they shouldn't be suppressing the black creators. And it's just really sad that that, that trend that's been there from the early part of the 20th century in terms of cultural music is, is being entrenched by an algorithm. Mm. That's the thing. It's like, as you said, it's, it's always been there, which is 
it doesn't make it okay, obviously, but the fact that it's now been put onto like a social platform and they're almost I don't know, like like encouraging it, obviously through this algorithm algorithm or, or just not encouraging it, but well, I suppose actually it is. Facilitating. Like, yeah. yeah, that's also. probably a better word. Like yeah, the fact that they're actually like doing that, that's yeah. I mean, like you say, it's not okay that it obviously was happening before, but the fact that now it's actually moved onto a different platform and especially if they know that it's it's going on like the fact that you've got this article which obviously you've, you've taken offline like someone there clearly knows that it's going on or is obviously sort of making it happen like that is the worst bit about it like I don't mm. I don't blame them for striking like yeah I think because because surely yeah. when all the content sort of dries up and there's nothing out there like the message is going to be sort of like widely recognized and sort of spread really yeah and like just just like um women in tech need male allies they're talking about the need for white allyship they're talking about the need for for you know there there to be more pressure on companies like um tiktok um to to make sure that their algorithms don't suppress the people creating the content in the first place and that it's it's fairly recognized and i think that's fair enough yeah no so do i there we go anyway um that'll do for today everyone have a lovely weekend amber enjoy your weekend if you're cycling anywhere I will not be cycling. No, I've done two rides this week and I think that's my lot. So the bike is um, it's going going away for a few days. <laughs> this will make no sense to anyone listening, but before we hit record, Amber, who runs regularly, told me that she can't cycle, which I think must be rubbish. But there we go. Maybe someone can tell me that I'm being <laughs> narrow-minded. Anyway, have a lovely weekend. I don't-